clubhouse. Don't tell anyone. Not ever. I can do this. I can keep you safe if no one ever hears about it. You understand? Adam, this is the rest of our lives. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Welcome to Tales from Yaya, the Your Honor podcast. Tonight we're talking about episode one of Your Honor, cleverly titled Part One. It was written by Peter Moffat and it was directed by Edward Berger. Peter Moffat also is responsible for adapting this from the Israeli show Kaboto, which means... Your Honor. Very clever. This show is a 2017 Israeli show that they've now brought over for Showtime and it's virtually identical. At least in if you read the logline, Caroline, it's an identical setup to what we're seeing here but with more brian cranston 100 percent more brian cranston so. <laughs> we could all use 100 percent more brian cranston in our lives if you're listening to this we're going to assume you've watched the episode but the general overview how would you how would you describe the 30 second elevator pitch i would say our setup is an unfortunate accident happens between adam desiano and rocco baxter in which there is a, a, a terrible car accident and sadly rocco perishes And Adam flees the scene. That's the basic setup. Then what falls out from that and all the details are basically what we're going to pick through with you. Adam's father, who is a judge in New Orleans, who the show goes out of its way, I think, in the first episode to establish as a a just man, as an honorable man, gets caught up in trying to hide the crime and to protect his son. Well, let's get into these dads because we've got two dads in this episode. I don't know if we'll get more dads, but right now we've got two. We've got Michael Desiato, played by Brian Cranston. Mm-hmm. And then we have Jimmy Baxter, played by... Michael Stuhlbarg. Who you guys might know from The Shape of Water. I didn't really recognize him at all. I, I think he was such a Quentin Tarantino lookalike, Mike. Yeah. It freaks me out. He looked a lot like Quentin Tarantino. It was... I ha- In my notes, it was one of the first things I wrote down. I was like, is that Quentin Tarantino? Is this his brother? There's a there's a very <laughs> Quentin Tarantino-esque vibe about him. Let's compare these dads a little bit, Mike, because we find out that Jimmy Baxter is, in fact, a vicious crime lord, right? I, I, maybe the, the worst, the head of the worst crime family that uh, New Orleans has ever seen. Maybe. According to, <laughs> according to Judge Desiato. So that's an interesting juxtaposition when you think about him, who though seems to be kind of a devoted family man. I, got, I mean, I think so. I would say he is very devoted to his wife and his kids. He was genuinely happy to, to present the motorcycle oh, yeah. to Rocco. I mean, he was living vicariously through that boy in a way that was unbelievable. Yeah, the clapping his hands. He's generally over the moon that he's able to provide this 1974 Cafe Racer vintage motocross bike to his son, who clearly is over the moon about having it. Um, and he does the classic dad setup, which when you learn he's a mobster, puts <laughs> less a, funny, puts a little hair on the thing when he when he's like, "What's that doing on my lawn?" You know, I was and a little that. nervous at that point. I was like, "Oh, this guy's a bad guy." Yeah, he's like, you know, he's a little unhinged, a little unhinged. But then it's all you know, like a fake out. Obviously, he put it on his lawn. <laughs> you know, so. Rocco gets this motorbike for his birthday. Yeah, and he seems genuinely happy to provide it. He seems really into it. Him and Gina, uh, his wife, they, they seem very into their family, very over the moon as it's Rocco's birthday is approaching. I guess he's 17, about to turn 18. Yes. So then on the flip side, we have 
Michael with his son, Adam, and they also have a very loving relationship. I mean, absolutely, Michael wants to protect Adam at all costs, at all costs, Mike, we find out. And, you know, he, he seems like a very loyal, loving, faithful family man as well. He does. He does. I mean, I think it's a little hard to judge only because we only get to see them together once this horrible event has occurred. Yeah. So it, it would be interesting to see what their relationship was like before this. We know that Adam, it's an indeterminate age. I mean, he almost feels like a high school student, but there's a lot of hints here that maybe he's a college aged kid. Right. So, and he's living not in the house with his father. He's technically living in like the little one bedroom apartment behind the house. So he's moved out, but not quite, you know, maybe he's a, just a young man kind of learning to stretch his legs. So we don't know what the relationship is pre this crime, but Michael definitely seems devoted to protecting his son at all costs once, once he's in it, which is interesting. And I think there's also the overshadow of the show begins on the day, the anniversary of their mother's, of his, of Adam's mother's death, Brian Cranston, Michael's wife. So there's a, another emotional layer at work here too, that I think both of them seem to be under extra stress uh, beyond what this horrific event would already kind of bring. So what other cast members do we have on the docket that we feel like we need to pay close attention to? Less so in this episode, but clearly will be a character worth watching is Hope Davis. Uh, Hope Davis plays Gina Baxter. She plays Rocco's mother, Jimmy's wife. She will become an important character. Uh, it's interesting. We learn in this episode that Jimmy is the head of uh, a horrible, vicious crime family. So you always have to wonder what the mother of the crime family's role is in that. While she is a very much grieving mother here, we see her almost collapse twice, really, the two times we get to see her in this episode. Uh, I think we have to keep an eye on her and how she's going to go about trying to deal with her son's murder. There is a load of supporting cast members that are very small little bit parts that are all these witnesses to the crime, all these different eyewitness parts. We have the neighbor across the street. We've got the man who witnesses the um, pumping of gas. We've got the actual- who Adam waves to. Why would yeah. you? I've never waved to anyone, especially <laughs> if you're honking at me for taking too long. I'm, I'm going to maybe show you my hand, but it's not going to be a wave. I think that's a Southern thing I'm going to say where you're like, I got you. I see you. You know, you're like acknowledging, right? So I, I got it, but not the time, Adam, not the time. Yeah. I we mean, also have the window washer guy, yep. a concerned citizen about him. And we have the group of gang members, it appears, who pop up when Adam is out there putting his picture out there of his mom and proceed to follow and actually truly witness the crime. I got to tell you, there's there's a few things scarier to me anyway than when a imposing car is following you and you already sense danger from it and then its lights flip on. Uh... The headlights coming on and that, I mean, it would only have been more if it was like nighttime and all of a sudden headlights flip on. But there's something very intimidating about it. There's something very ominous about it. Th those guys were truly out to get him. I mean, they were walking up to the car, but then the one guy pulled a gun as far as I could see. Yeah. I mean, my God. Yeah, they, I mean, and obviously, so Adam run, drives back around. He's already panicked a little bit at the at the guy's approaching as he kind of runs from his mother's little uh, honorarium that he leaves. But he comes, drives around a corner, and they had already destroyed the thing. They took the time to destroy oh the picture and, and rip apart the flowers in the frame and stuff. How painful when we know that that was a photograph that he had framed on his desk, like something clearly wasn't just a picture that he had framed to go put out there, but it was a picture that was on his desk that he looked at, I'm sure, every day. It was clearly very special to him. 
I, I want to dive into Hunter Doohan here, who plays Adam, because obviously he's going to be a major character. He's the one who hits Rocco. He's the one who's having to live literally with the guilt of what he's done, even as his father tries to clean it up for him or on his behalf. So I, I want to get into him. But before we do it, I think we have to also talk about one extra side character, Charlie, who seems to be Michael's best friend, who's played by Isaiah Whitlock Jr., who I, I feel like I recognize, but I haven't looked up from where. But he definitely has a, hey, it's that guy kind of face. Uh, what's your first take on Charlie, the gregarious friend? Oh, he seems like somebody you want in your corner. He seems like somebody who would be a great friend. I think it's so important that we do understand that it's the anniversary of the wife's death in that there is this feeling of a whole community really trying to wrap them up. It seems like we meet a variety of people who are like truly loving these two men, um, Adam and Michael, and really wanting to like look out for them. And you get that feel with Charlie. Charlie, you can already almost see is going to be in a tight spot being a best friend to this honorable judge. Uh, but now having, we learned this episode that he's going to be running for mayor. It's going to be interesting to see how much Michael can share with him or does confide with him in this, right? We always want to be able to turn to our friends, right? You and I talk about this seemingly a lot, maybe a disturbing amount. Like, who who is in your life that would help you hide the bodies? Right. And it seems like Charlie is someone who maybe Michael would turn to to help hide a body or cover up a crime. But now it's complicated. If he's going to be running for mayor, how dirty can Charlie really let his hands get? So I, I think I wanted to mention him, one, because he seemed very likable. And they seem to have a really natural, like, honest friendship true friendship but there now this cloud kind of hanging over everything before we move on from our characters let's talk about michael because i think that he is obviously going to be our central character adam is absolutely the culprit here but at the same time he's it's not gonna be his story constantly yeah and he's constantly like reeling off to the side right. he's got his own antics going on but we're very much dealing with it from michael's pov right. so what was your first impression of him what type of judge he was what type of man he was i, I think it's hard to discuss that without talking about Brian Cranston, who is a really versatile actor. I think he's someone who plays bad guys really well. I think he's someone who plays good guys really well. I think he's someone who does serious roles, dramatic turns really well, but also has a real sense of humor and a dry wit. He seems like someone who you would drink an entire bottle of wine with and end up laughing with, but also at the end realize it was probably really serious things you were talking about. Mm. Um, and I think there's a little bit of him in all of his characters. It seems to me anyway, just from interviews. And I was at a panel with him at New York Comic Con a couple of years ago. And even his his speaking persona, his public persona, his Brian Cranston persona, you see the elements of your Walter White's, of the Malcolm in the Middle dad, of Michael Desiato here, the judge. There's little bits of him in all of that, it seems. I think this is probably my favorite thing I've seen him in since Breaking Bad. And there's a complexity there that I think there's going to be a very similar vibe to, because if you, if you look back to the beginning of Breaking Bad, Walter White gets into making meth for good reasons. He learns he has cancer. He learns that he's a, making a teacher's salary. His his wife, his son, who has special needs, is going to be left with nothing. And so th this, this desperation leads him to starting to do bad things, to break bad. He gets so involved in it, it becomes who he is. He becomes... The, the darkness, you know, I'm the one who knocks. He becomes, you know, Heisenberg. And he, he goes so far down the rabbit hole, he can no longer find the, the way out. And I'm, it's interesting that we're seeing this honorable judge who the show, like we said at the very top, goes out of its way in this episode, I think, to show you is an honorable man. Oh my gosh, yeah. I mean, I think that the way he handled the courtroom, mm -hmm. 
I mean, you're a lawyer. I don't know how many times you've been in a courtroom, but I mean, I thought it was handled really well. I, one of my biggest things is that I need clever characters. I need smart characters. Right. Those are the only people I'm rooting for. When you get somebody who can you know, take down a witness by just asking right. questions in a way that twists themselves up. That's so great. I love those moments. And I liked, I liked that courtroom scene, not only because he's clever in how he picks apart the, the cop. Uh, he had done the research. It all made sense now why we had seen him run up the stairs at the beginning of the episode, uh, which didn't make sense at the time, right? Who's this guy running up the stairs of a house that he doesn't belong to? Are you the police? No, he runs away. He doesn't say anything. That boy is later in the courtroom. So he must have been like, I fucking saw that guy this morning. You know? It was so weird. So I love that he did the work on it. And I love that he kept, every time he would make a point, he would say, you sure you want to stick with your story that you just told? <laughs> right. He gives him he gives him so much rope to hang himself, and then he just he just desiccates him. He just they just rips him apart, and it's delicious to watch. So I, I agree. I love a character. I love the sass. It's not just because the guy's a liar. It's because he's a liar that's going to send this woman away for possibly years, taking her away from her family, taking her away from these small children who then will likely fall into a life of crime themselves. I mean, the, the guys, we know there's a gang presence already in the, in the lower ninth where the house is. It's not a great area to begin with. You're, you're almost guaranteeing it that these guys are going to wind up all in the street. So I love that empathy and the sympathy that he shows, which drives him to rip the cop apart. Favorite line of that? Uh, do you have see around corner eyes? <laughs> I feel like I want to say that to like anyone I meet who's like I know is telling a lie and be like oh really you saw that you did you have see around corner eyes really really right. you do love that or are love you that. just the liar of the most vile kind oh yes, right? my god yeah. such a good takedown it's such a great takedown and it, it says a lot about him right because there's this trope where judges are going to be blindly on the police side no matter what the facts and circumstances are but you get the impression that Michael Desiato is on justice's side in whatever form that takes and and he's going to use his power as a judge here in this new orleans court to exact justice whatever that looks like which i like it makes him instantly likable makes him instantly someone you want to root for and maybe by goodwill when he's by the end of this episode gathering up crime evidence and starting to do shady stuff whether or not it's justified which is a whole other conversation that's of, going to be an ongoing conversation i think right. Yeah, I think I think so. I think the idea of how far is too far, how how justified are you in trying to protect your loved one in your loved ones? So we feel like we we like Michael. We like the the casting of Brian Cranston. I definitely think that you know Jimmy Baxter was cast well in terms of a mm -hmm. of a real creeper. Uh, Dad, you know I get it, but he's got that edge to him. You know the way he played out the surprise made me feel edgy. There's something up with him. We sure. know that we got that extra feeling. What did you think about the casting for Adam? Do you like how he played it? Do you like his mannerisms and just, just the way that he delivers everything? I liked him because he's so innocent looking. He's so insubstantial without being rude to him. There is a young wispiness about Adam. And and when you add in the asthma, the, the chronic asthma that he has, the severe asthma that he has, we watch, we witness at least two major asthmatic attacks in this episode, one of which is the direct cause of the accident. It makes him very kind of pitiful. I think Hunter Duhand brings that across really well because he feels the guilt, right? Yeah. What did you think of how he reacted to the crime? Because I think that matters a lot in how we feel about him. Well, I do want to say that I love the way they use the word innocent because I think it was important that they actually showed him naked 
it sounds silly, but seeing him completely like bare assed at the very beginning of the episode, he's not in a business suit like every other man you see in this whole thing. They're all adult men dealing with life. He is an innocent babe, right? I understand he's, yes, he's in bed with a woman. Let's not act like he's not, but there's something about him that it's like, he's already stripped down literally. And he just seems like the type of person who is more fragile, you know, all the way around. You know, he's so concerned about like feeding the dog his meds. Like that's literally the first thing we see after he gets out of bed is him stuffing pills for the, for the dog into the banana and stuff. And later on, even going to the police station, he wants to take the dog with him and and it's curious if he's doing it more for his own support or so the dog's not alone he want he tells his dad make sure you give Django his meds like there's a very kind simple heart here plus again it's the anniversary of his mother's death right i mean there's a lot going on here Let, let's get into adam and the crime yes, right so yes. so he has this he's on the run from the gang he's already kind of into this asthmatic fit he drops his inhaler He's reaching over for it, like defending your lifestyle, etc. It's, you know, instead of Barbara Streisand playing as he runs into a car, he's reaching for his inhaler and he hits Rocco, kills him. From there, what did you think of how he reacted to the crime? And does that make him a good person, a sympathetic person? He's a scumbag because he eventually leaves. Like, what, what's your take on how he acts in the situation? I think he did everything that a person could do up until the point where he decides to leave. I mean, he he goes over there. You know, he's he's in shock himself. He's obviously injured himself. He's in the middle of an asthma attack. He runs right over there. He tries to, I mean, he cleared his airway. He tried to do CPR. Got to talk about the actual, like, cinematic effect of the motorcycle hitting the car. Mm. Oh, my God. I, like, jumped in my seat. And then going over and when he starts to have CPR and he barfs up the blood all over him. Mm -hmm. Wow. Those were like two jump scares for me. I watched this episode twice. Both times, both of those events made me jump back. The hitting of the motorcycle as it comes up and over the windshield was visceral. Because there's not a lot of background music going on. There wasn't a lot of like, it wasn't like the strings were gearing you up for something. Usually you get musical cues that something's going to happen, right? Shows do that. Movies do that because they want you to be ready. They're trying to prime the pump on your emotions. The show didn't do that. It let the action sequence hit you the way it presumably also hit Adam. Now, having, now, having said that, when we were watching, you and I were talking to each other, and we both said when Rocco took off on the motorcycle and when Adam took off in the car, despite the fact that we didn't know what was going to happen, we were like, oh, these two are going to cross paths. And we didn't know, but the whole time he's driving on the bridge, he's like, when is he going to run into Rocco? Like, they're definitely going to cross paths. Right. Why did we feel that way? I think it was a combination of the editing. Uh, the editing in the opening sequence, I think, was really good. All the way through the t- to the title card dropping was a really tightly edited set piece, which without a lot of music set the tone because you were quick cutting back and forth between and watching them begin their day, the high of the birthday boy getting this motorbike and his family heading off. Right. Do you know how to drive the bike? Yeah, I know how to drive the bike. Oh, ho, 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 ho. And he, off he goes. He kickstarts it and definitely does it, right? He, he starts the thing. He kicks the, the thing into gear and, and starts on the first try. Definitely knows how to use the motorbike. This is not user error on Rocco's part. Adam, after the woman leaves the bed, is, is kind of a shaking mess, right? He's clipping the flowers. He's got the picture of his mom. He's, he's very nervousy feeling. He's very pasty. He's a very pasty boy. We've got the first end thing in the, of the asthma, which we've already seen him take a puff on before he even left the house. Right. It's on the front seat of the car with him. Very different people. Rocco and Adam are very different personality types. 
but we're going back and forth one to the other, one to the other. It's like they're destined to meet each other. And I think it's because of the editing back and forth and sprinkled in there are all the little witnesses that you may see pop up later, like the neighbor waiting outside. Yeah. Um, who then appears again in the episode with at the end of the episode she at nighttime. Everywhere. She was there when Every- he pulls the Volvo back in. She's like eating. Uh, she was like shelling pistachio nuts on the porch, eating them. Yeah. Mrs. And, Kravitz. Yeah, Every- my, and then at the very end, oh my God, he's like shadow in the window. Like she's yeah. over there peeping on him then. Right. Man, yeah. Yeah, really setting a tone. Witnesses. Setting a tone. And then, because then in between that, you also then have the Brian Cranston scenes of him running. And people running, even if they're just jogging, there's something anxiety building about seeing someone running when you don't know why also and okay. and him resting up against the the headstone. There's then this third aspect also setting a tone. This is not a happy show. Right. There's a tone, there's a vibe here. And there's also something kind of gray. It's kind of a gray day where we're getting shots of New Orleans, but we're not getting like the Mardi Gras New Orleans. We're getting like lower ninth post-Katrina New Orleans. I mean, it's very gritty, very very gray. The house has a marking, which I'm pretty sure is from the flood times. Right, the probably right because they have like the marking, and I think that it's it looked flood gauge, it, like a flood gauge, right? And it looked like, like or some kind of like the house had been cleared or something like that. This is destitute. This is poverty. It's all setting up this vibe of nothing good is going to happen. We don't know what's going to happen, but something bad is going to happen. Yeah. So let's get back to that actual crime scene after Rocco's hit. We go over and we see this contorted body. Makes my stomach hurt to to see the the, oh, leg, the leg and the amount of blood and yeah. and the the boy's face. Everything that was happening there was breaking my heart. Great makeup job, too, because he feels like he's getting paler as that scene goes on. Yes. Which is, I don't know how they were doing that. I mean, they were doing it maybe probably in edits. They would make him a little bit paler and a little bit paler every time they cut away from him. But it was literally like you could feel the blood and life leaving him. What did you think? Because you're 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 a little bit of a scare baby. Not so much with the with the blood and stuff. What did you think of Adam trying to clear his mouth after he spits up all that blood on him? He sticks his fingers in there and tries to clear the airway and does some CPR. Well, that's what I'm saying. That I don't think that this is a scene where you where I would not classify this as a hit and run. A hit and run. The person doesn't get out and try to do CPR right. and try to and you know he didn't run. He didn't run. He not at, not at first. Not at first. It was only until the scene got so hairy and so scary that he finally just wasn't I think was in shock and and took off I I think it was admirable to try you know and I know people might be like you know well come on he called 911 if he could have gotten the words out he said help if he could have gotten the words out I do believe he would have been telling the truth and calling the ambulance and all those those types of things I don't know the exact moment he takes the couple puffs on his inhaler kind of regains himself after a very heroic struggle to crawl back on the pavement to go get that inhaler Something... so he could talk to 911 yeah he was trying he, i think i think he's i think he's crawling to the inhaler not even so much to breathe but so he can talk to 911 the realizing i can't communicate what has happened here right where do you think the snap happened where he decides i can't stay here i gotta get out of here i think it's a combination of a couple things i think it's his airways opening up again i think it's actually getting the air into his lungs then being physically distant from Rocco's body and but also seeing now that he is dead there's a lifelessness there that has now come over him the eyes are open and still but there's no longer any breathing or gurgling I think that and the physical distance from him it's not like he's up in his face anymore where it's very you and me mm-hmm. you know it's me and you Rocco like I'm here I'm helping you I'm gonna try and keep you there's he's actually now created distance and I think the shock the immediate shock has given gives way to panic and shock 
you see the whole crime scene from the doorway from where the car hit to where the body is. So he has air now. So now almost like his brain can operate a little bit. He's got the bloody smash phone in his hand, 911 screaming in his, in his, in his palm. Uh, you know, where are you? Talk to me. But I think their physical distance hits him of there's this guy who's dead. I am no longer with him. You know, now I'm wa- watching it. And I think that allows the shock of I have done this thing and I need to help fix this thing gives way to shock and panic. And I think everything thereafter is just him in panic mode, just flee mode of I need to put distance between it. I need to I need to get away from the scene as much as I can. And it, and it becomes chaotic, right? He literally makes every possible mistake you can make. This is not a criminal uh, mastermind. No. From from not checking the sea, just backing up with the bike still wedged under, uh, not checking the sea if he actually cleared all the motorcycle, uh, motorcycle parts. You mentioned the gas station waving at the guy, still having the fucking phone. He tries to call his father the judge on the stolen phone. I know that part feels like what did you kiss of death, man? I think you and I both had a had a similar reaction to this when the phone starts to buzz again with nine one one calling, and he's at the stoplight with the cops next to him. What was your take on that? Scene? Holy shit! There was a couple little moments that actually made me like squirm around in my seat. The the cops moment where he's like white knuckling it, and he's clearly like just like please let the nine one one call like stop. I I don't know. I mean, for those of you guys who don't know about nine one one and everything, in my experience, they cannot figure out your location. That's that's based on personal experience. If you don't know the address, as much as you want to try to describe to them exactly where you are, they are very little help. I know that sounds silly, but they're not. And the fact is, is I mean, they should be able to figure out where right. that that's happening, but no, they can't. So I, I thought that was great. But also the visual of the dog walking over and starting to lick up Rocco's mm. blood. Uh, I mean, if you were trying to get it into our heads that that Rocco is being classified as like roadkill, essentially, you know, a scavenger animal is coming over to start feeding on his dead body. Ah, this was for my scare baby self, quite a bit (laughs) to take in. Yeah. We have a couple of dogs that have a, have a thing for blood in this episode. We We have this dog. And then then Django also got a little taste for the blood too, which honestly, if, if you've ever had a dog is not a, a far thing. If you've ever had a cut on your knee and you have a dog, the dog will come over and lick your knee. Ew. It's a thing dogs do, um, and it, they're they're drawn to it. I, I guess genetically with their wolf cousins or whatever it is. But I remember <laughs> growing up, and every time I had like a like a scab on my ear or something, a dog always like Ew. yeah, very gross. Dogs um, are sick. Uh, so yeah, they got a little cannibal dogs. The the phone buzzing it almost reminded me of like a heartbeat. It was a it was a auditory like representation of what's going on in Adam's chest. There, I thought it was actually a really nice bit of directing and and sound work. I mean, I get nervous just driving down the street when cops pull up next to me. When I'm doing nothing. When I'm doing nothing. I'm like eating like a chip and I'm like, is it okay if I eat this chip? Should I ask the officer if this is acceptable? My hands aren't at 11 (laughs) and 2 while I'm eating this chip. Like, is there a subparagraph C of chapter 130 that I'm supposed to have both hands on the wheel? Yeah, so I get nervous whenever a cop pulls up next to me or behind me. And I don't even have blood all over my shirt. I'm not typically. Sometimes I do, but usually it's my own blood, not someone else's blood. Uh, but everything he does wrong, he runs into the the man washing the windshield, who 
granted, this is a thing we have in New York too. People just washing your windshield yeah. on, and and then think about the situation he's in, and he doesn't even like drive away. He's just very pleased, like sorry, like, no, 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 and he's trying to couch <laughs> and hide his bloody shirt from this man. Yeah. I, I don't, he's just in panic mode. He's just in panic mode. He overloads the di- uh, not dishwasher. He overloads clothes uh, the. Washing machine. Washing machine. The clothes. Yeah, the, the, the clothes cleaner. He overloaded the washing machine. Oh, you're and, getting worked up. And I know. Upset. I'm nervous. What did I do today? You're white knuckling the washing machine. I've killed three people today. <laughs> that uh, explains why the dog's been licking you. Well, that and the peanut butter. But that's not important right now. I want to get to, though, what your reaction is to Michael's reaction. When he eventually gets home, he sees his son. His son, Adam, literally runs away from him because he's throwing oh up the my trash. God. He fall- so awkward. Oh, yeah. He's like, what are you doing? Why are you right. running from me? Right, right, right. And it starts off all humorous, right? He's like, oh, look at my son taking out the trash. You know, and then, <laughs> and then, but it turns into this thing. Does Michael have the reaction that you think you'd have if one of your kids came to you and said this? Well, I think that the key again was the setup that this was the anniversary of mom's death. It immediately gave Michael this automatic reason to plug in his head oh you're acting all weird and hermity back here and and whatever kind of huddling away from me because your mom passed away okay this makes sense i'll make dinner we'll watch shawshank again you know and and we'll be cool so all that i think if you if you kind of just distilled that down would i be quick to make an excuse for my kid probably i'd be like did you did you have a bad day at school i'd be starting to feed excuses right I think I think that's pretty common. He starts shaping a defense right away. Mm-hmm. I like this reaction. Maybe not the holding my hands. That seems a little. It was very feminine, seems, and I don't know little, how to describe it differently. Not, it didn't strike me as feminine. It, it struck me as a little stage acting ish, like the kind of thing you would do on the stand. Like I'm going to have an emotional moment here now. <laughs> with my hands over my face. You can't, well, listeners was, can't see that, but a, I just covered my face kind of thing. So it what, was like a gasp move, right? Like a, <gasps> right. and like covering your mouth, right? right? But touching the bottom half of your face is very feminine. ASL, the bottom half of your face is women and the top half of your face is men. Right. Men, Take their hands and put them on their head. I do all the time. They 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 might they they will hold their head. They will do all those things. Women cover their mouth and hold their face and cover cover the bottom half of their mouth. So that's why I'm calling it feminine. Interesting, because it comes off very feminine to me. It's very clutch your pearls. It is. It is. So when he eventually takes his hands to the top of his head, that's a move I do constantly. Any kind of stress I feel, my hands are constantly combing through my hair. I'm pulling my you hands. Get, you get that big Chris Farley, like, yeah, because because <laughs> I'm running, I'm running my hands through my hair so often and so much. But I liked the reaction part of it, though, where, again, we've seen now him in judge mode. We've seen him in action. He's a guy who's methodical. He is a doer. He is a problem solver. We've already seen this. So I like the fact that he goes into problem solving mode. Oh, you're in shock. You tried to help. Even while you had the shock, even while you're having your asthma attack, you're trying to help him. He's already framing a defense. He's, yeah, he's like, you he's couldn't in, breathe. You couldn't breathe. Right. Is that, is that how it was, son? Is yes. that how it, Yes. Feeding him. Feeding almost, the excuses. Almost feeding him because he knows. And then it hits at him. He's like, we have to go to the police station. But don't we say that all the time, especially I think with younger children, you know, a kid starts crying. And the first thing we do is not just say, I'm here to listen to you. Like, go ahead. You fill in the blanks. They're like, does your knee hurt? Are you hungry? Did you get scared? What? You know, like there's like a whole game of like, let me fill in the blank for you. And then you just tell me when I get it, (laughs) you know? And basically like, you know, all that Adam spits out is the motorcycle, 
and then basically help help dad like that kind of thing like i like i couldn't breathe that kind of thing right that's really all he says and michael crafts the whole rest of the story right he fills in all the blanks he shapes the story i mean having watched the crime happen he's pretty close to right you were in shock but you still tried to help it's it's interesting to watch the various things kind of fall away. Well, is he dead? Uh, I don't know. He looked like he was dead. Well, where did it happen? It happened in the lower ninth. Oh, okay. So I know what hospital they would have taken him to. Did the cops say anything? Well, it wasn't, I wasn't there for the cops. He didn't stay for the cops. Like, yeah. So he's like, all right, I can shape it this way. Oh, fuck. Okay. And then, wait, no, you, no, the, yeah. your T's weren't even there yet? Right, right, left. right. Exactly. So no, like, all right, shit. Now we have to go to plan B. Well, I try calling 911. Okay, you try calling 911. That's I didn't good. Wait, I didn't wait for them to get there, though. Oh, fuck. You didn't wait for 911. But I couldn't because I couldn't breathe, so I couldn't talk to 911. Okay. You couldn't breathe. So he's, he's, you know, it's like, work with me here, Adam. God, work yeah. with me, God. When he gets up in his feet, he's on his knee. Well, he grabs his shoulders and he's, Adam, yeah. like, sh- right. you know, quickly jerks away and he's look like. At, <gasps> look at that scene just from staging. It's almost like a play where he's, he's seven feet apart from him when he finds out when he grabs his face. He's closer and closer, and he's he's literally touching him on his knee, like he's proposing to him almost. Like, work with me here. Yes. This is what happened, son. Is. This is what he's happened. Proposing son. a story. He's proposing a story, and he's shaping it. Which, and he listen. He's stoic in the face of it, the moment. He starts calling a friendly detective, which we haven't met yet, Nancy Costello. We see him calling a lawyer, who we learn is Lee Delamere. Who again, we, two women who become important in a show, who we only hear about in I this bet episode. Lee's a man. Just throwing it out there. It's a Southern name. Okay, but it's played by a woman named Carmen. Oh, so, well, then in that case, it's a woman. <laughs> it's probably a woman. It's probably, it's probably a woman. But uh, so, but uh, two people we don't, we hear of in this episode, but we, don't, we haven't seen yet. Right. But we will. And they're going to become part of the story. But again, it just shows, it just shows that he's thinking. His brain is worrying, whereas Adam is just stuck in neutral panic. Well, come on. The entire I mean, you time. Have to, yeah. I mean, when you're a part of the system, I got to think that the first thing you do is start to just work the system, right? Like he, he's a judge. He knows the steps. What's the first thing we got to do? Well, we, we really want to have a friendly detective, somebody who we know right. and is going to listen to our story and believe us. We're going to lawyer up right from go. We're not going right. to make that mistake in The Undoing and every other show we ever see where we say, why don't they get a lawyer? What are right. they doing? Lawyer up right away. I mean, he's taking the right steps. Everything seems right. Now, I know that we both stopped and were like, do you think he's going to actually take him to the police station? And there was a lot of like, well, yes, I think he is. Wait, what? Is he going to? I don't know. Now, is he? There was a lot of like, mm, not so sure. Is this really going to happen this way? I thought it was super odd that they wanted to take the dog Adam wanted to take the dog. I get it from a comfort standpoint, but I don't get it at all from the standpoint of like, what I've are they going to do with the dog? I've never reported a crime, but I can't imagine it's something that takes five minutes. Right. Yeah. So you're going to be at the police station for a while. Well, you're going to leave the dog in the trunk for a while. What are we doing here? I thought that was, I thought, I thought that was a weird call. I didn't, I, I mean, there's no payoff in it in this episode because they, as we And go, the dog like, doesn't oh. even like sit up on Adam's lap or something right. as if they're like having some, you know, comforting or something. Like, right. What is with a dog in the trunk? That's weird. It was a weird thing. And I get maybe why Michael just agreed to it. He's like, yeah, fine, whatever the fuck. Like, we'll take the dog. But right. also at the same time, yeah, you're, you're going to be at the police station for a while. So Mike, I'm going to file that under, hmm? Yeah. Because I think we have several other hmm, not a moments over yes. here that are like, I don't really get why it played out quite like that. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And there, there are several, there are several holes in the show. 
um, which definitely are worth talking about. I don't know that they, in the end, distracted my enjoyment of the show. Right. And I'm definitely here for it. I want to see how this, I want to see how deep this goes, how far he goes uh, with what we learn about he shifts from doing the right thing here. And, you know, to answer that question, I 100% believe that he's going to turn his kid in or have Adam turn himself in here because he's got a really plausible story. A doctor probably can tell a reasonable asthma attack. You'll be able to can reconstruct it. Not that he has the inhaler because he drops it on the floor mm. there. There's enough, there's enough here if you look at the the tire skid marks, clearly there was a loss of control, the way it kind of went through the intersection on an angle. There's a lot there. Fingerprints everywhere, because fucking Adam touched every goddamn part of that, though. <laughs> it's not like he yes. hit the kid and then went and clearly, you know, tried to do him off. The reason that Michael Desiato is not hiding evidence before they leave for the police station is because... He is confident enough with a friendly detective and a good lawyer and the right story, which they have. There's a there's a, a pathway here to minimal consequences or as minimal as consequences as there should be for this kind of crime. Because it is a crime. Someone did get killed. A, a person did lose their life. But Adam also wasn't completely blameless. I like the line that they said, I won't not do what's smart just because it's my son. So it's smart not to start this whole thing with the idea of like, we're going on the lamb. Like, that's not the right way to start. The way to start is to hopefully turn yourself in as painlessly and with the least amount of consequences possible. And another cementing of the Michael Desiato is a good guy. He is an honorable man. Yes. He is the, the same judge that defended this woman and her family against minor these drug not minor but these drug charges that may have taken her away against the lying cop that he knew was lying in the shotgun house it's the same guy we see here as a dad now son you did something here there have to be consequences for it but i'm gonna do the best i can to minimize them because there's this idea of justice yeah right you have to face the music for you there have to be the consequences for the things you do but the consequences should be in line with your culpability in the thing. Now, let me ask you, Mike, when he goes in and he's going to actually speak with the police officers and, and he says very, I think, intelligently, stay in the car. Let me, let me set go this set up. this up for you. I think smart, very smart. I do that all the time. Let me go up to the to the customer service. You hang back. Right. I'll deal with it. I was wondering what you thought about the reveal of who the Baxters are and how this actually played out. Did you think it was good storytelling, the way that they layered it in, including the the older detective man yelling Mike as if he knew the judge, right? right? What did you think about how we realize who the Baxters are and what the implications truly are of what Adam did? I liked it because we see the Baxters grieving and howling and we see Gina Baxter almost collapsing and, and the contorted face on Jimmy's face. But we see it from Michael's point of view. It's almost like it goes into some kind of like Matrix like slow mo, mm-hmm. where the desk sergeant is, Sir, can I help you? Before he gets distracted by the other cop calling Mike, who, which is a great little fake out. It was a great It was fake a great little fake out. out. It turns out it's the cop is named Mike. But the desk sergeant of, Sir, can I help you? Which is on his left. But he's, he's drawn, the atten- his attention is drawn to the howling woman crying in despair. And the math, you can see, it's almost like Russell Crowe, Beautiful Mind style. You can see him doing the math calculations. And Brian Cranston is such a fucking pro. It's all on his face. It plays across his face in just seconds what happened. 
he doesn't believe in coincidences. The idea that there's grieving parents here who he knows as a judge in New Orleans is going to know Jamie Baxter right. grieving his son killed someone all within the same kind of time frame-ish. Right. He, he does the math. He does the safe math bet that more likely than not, you just didn't kill someone. You killed Jimmy Baxter's kid. Right. I love that. So, I love that. It really worked for me. So that you? part, so that part, his reaction, and we don't know yet as the audience, we don't know who Jimmy Baxter is. Right. Right. We don't know until he turns his heel and goes back out to the car. And here we've got Adam being a boy, right? Being right. all like, what do you mean, dad? I thought we we're supposed to go in. And he's yeah. like, knock it off. Like, yeah. Even said, stay in the car. He didn't say get out of the car and get your shit ready. Mm-mm-mm. Kids don't listen. Kids don't listen. Did you appreciate, though, that it basically we got told the entire setup in about three sentences via Michael's mouth, as opposed to any other more tricky way to figure it out? I liked it because they had already set the scene a little bit by introducing us to the Baxter family. It's not like this is the first time that we had seen the Baxters. True. We had last seen them as, hey, 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 he's got his bike and the, the joyful parents. That's the last time we see them. Now it's literally the 180 from that. The parents at the height of joy of the thing they've given their son and how much he's liked it. That was the last time they saw him. Then now the next time they're going to see him is in a morgue somewhere. And then they go to visit the crime scene to see where it happened. So I liked the juxtaposition of when we saw Jimmy and Gina in the morning. And now when we see them here, I liked that Michael tells us what the math is, what changed, because you feel the temperature drop in the room when he's staring at them and when the death sergeant is, sir, can I help you? And he decides to walk out and he gets dist- the cop gets distracted. You see that you feel it. You feel a cold come over Michael. You see him doing calculations, but you don't know why. So I like that we didn't have to wait a long time. And it's believable that he would tell his son why things are changing. Right. The the math has changed. This wasn't, this isn't just one plus one equals two anymore. This is one plus one equals you will be killed for the thing you have done. Now. And that's the thing. This is the question mark of justice. He wants to work through the system well enough, well equipped and and wisely, but he does expect his son to go through the justice system. But realizing this is absolutely imbalanced, there's going to be no justice here. Jimmy Baxter is going to kill my son if it ever turns out that he knows who did this. Right, because this is no longer Adam versus the justice system. This is Adam versus the justice system versus one of the worst crime family, leaders of the crime families New Orleans has ever seen. Right. That's a big difference. So the question is, does justice equal a death sentence? Does Adam deserve to pay with his life or with whatever horrible thing this mafia crime family boss will do to him does is that balance the ledger for taking Rocco's life I would have to think by having you know the oxygen deprivation that he would have been having you know during that asthma attack I would have to think that if you subtracted the portion of the the Baxter family you know this is just an an unfortunate medical emergency that happened while driving that's really it I mean plenty of people have had heart attacks or seizures or different things that happen while driving and they go off the road maybe killing themselves or others so that storyline that plot point I think is plausible and and you know I think he would have been okay I think it I don't even think it would have been involuntary manslaughter I don't think maybe it would have been like negligence or I don't exactly know what because if you're going through a true medical emergency Right. What I was going with with the oxygen deprivation is like, I think you could have a real case for I wasn't in my right mind. 
I, you're right. I made all the wrong decisions, but my mind was swirling. I was, right. I had hit my head in the car. My arm was busted. All these different things. I feel like you could, you could really easily see that. So is it enough that they added this layer of vicious crime family? I think so, because my gut feeling is from, again, and based solely on what we had seen of Michael up to this point, that his convictions were strong enough that if it's any other anonymous grieving family, it doesn't swerve him from still having his son face the music maybe he's more inclined to make sure that his detective friend is there before then since the family's there right because right, that right. is a super awkward situation oh, to God, walk into yeah. no matter who it is whether it's a crime family boss or not or or waits to his lawyer shows up there the idea of let me set this up maybe becomes more involved if any grieving family is there but I think he still goes through with it. I think it's the fact that this guy knows who that guy is, is what makes it turn. Again, and it's the fast math. Michael seems like someone who is not only well-tempered but, and a problem solver, but is not one who dithers for a very long time. He so does do, the math very fast as well. So what I guess I'm asking is, in the, in the world of TV and movies, since they're trying to set this up as a fairly realistic storyline, right? We're not a period piece, we're not <laughs> anything like that. Do you feel like this is relatable enough or, or have enough people be like, oh, I'm scared of a local crime family. So yeah. I would definitely not want to get on their bad side. Sure. Is that real? I think it's real enough that there are people and this is born out of not personal experience, but experiences that I know go on close enough to me that I think there is real considerations to who the victim of the thing is matters in the level of justice that you're going to receive okay, that's as a fair. consequence. So I think it is a legitimate thing to think that my son did this thing, did this horrible thing, no matter what his reasonings are, mitigating circumstances are, versus my son did this thing, no matter what the mitigating circumstances are, and the victim of his of his crime is this vicious person who is in a position to exact revenge and or some kind of punishment on top of what I believe the right justice is for. That's you know, I, I think if Michael goes through this process and a judge still says... You know, listen, he killed someone. Whatever the thing is, he killed someone and fled. He still has to do a year in jail. He still has to do two years in jail. He's going to have a record. I think Michael lives with that. I think Michael lives with it. Maybe he isn't happy with it. Maybe he tries to use his connections as a judge to get some leniency or to, to game the system a little bit more. But I think ultimately lives whatever the process tells him. I think the problem here is that seeing Baxter takes it out of the system mm -hmm. and it becomes a street justice that Michael cannot control. He cannot abide by. It's not a system he believes in and has put his faith in as a judge. It's this variable that I think he can't deal with. And I think that's why he goes to plan like a million, e. <laughs> right. you know, plan E of, all right, let's clean up the crime. We, we got to switch gears here. So we have the cleanup of the crime, which is very chaotic, chaotic and, and half-assed. I mean, I've seen enough, you know, forensic files and whatnot that I'm like, where's the bleach, man? Like, you can't just wipe things off with, like, a rag. You got to clean this shit up better than this. Right. And, uh, God, uh, we know there's stuff in the trash. We've got old Django taking evidence right away with him. A fucking dog, man. Oh. How do you not? I mean, they, they said it. They set up a nice detail by telling us that Django goes where Django wants, right? The show begins with him busting in the door uh, when Adam is in bed with his lady friend. So it's not maybe a surprise that we see Django outside in the yard 
taking the bloody rag out of the trash or near the trash. But how does how does Michael not see that? You're one you're you have now committed yourself to cleaning up this crime and trying to hide the evidence of it. How do you not account for I had two rags here. Now I have one He's rag. So here. panicked. He was getting the rags out of the trash can though. Out yeah. of the trash bag. There were like pieces of clothing and stuff. Yeah. So the problem is that like I You're wiping the car down in your driveway? Go drive it somewhere. The whole thing, pull it up further in the driveway. Right. right. Hide it Where somewhere. At right, least right. it's less obvious what you're doing, you right. know, like ay. Or let's talk about going to the bridge. Bridge. Now, Ooh. I like the bridge idea because on its face seems crazy because it's a fucking bridge. You can't pull over on bridges and throw things and off of them. You can see a bridge from a million miles away. You can see a human standing in the middle of the bridge. Right. But Michael knows the city and, and knows, presumably knows the city and knows that the bridge is going to be deserted. And it is. No cars pass by. Right. It just says. On except for the copper. Except for the copper. What did you think of Michael's covering, quick thinking to taking a leak on the wall of the bridge? I like the pullback in from the prostate cancer uh, excuse from the lawyer at the beginning. I would have gotten stuck on the PSA numbers. Yeah. When he was like, what's your numbers? What's your numbers? I would have been like, oh, I'm mm, waiting for test results. Like, I don't know. I feel like high. Like, yeah. Real high. Oh, you don't even want to know. I can't even speak of it. Mm, I spit it out of my mouth. Smart of the cop to ask him, though, Very... what, what your PSA number is. Jeez, but... Odd that the cop does not recognize yes. a well-respected judge in the system. A, Especially, can I point out, a judge that took down a cop that day? Might that kind of talk, I don't know, just titter through different stations about what a judge did today? Sure. And a judge that, when called the police station or a police station to leave a message for Nancy Costello, Detective Nancy Costello, leaves his name and says, Michael Desiato... And whoever on the line, based on Michael's response, says, yes, like the judge. So police know who Judge Desiato is. Right. I thought it odd also that this cop, this patrol cop, would not know him on site. He seems like a well-known enough celebrity figure in town to be recognized. I certainly know up in my small town, everyone knows who the judges are. Well, you, faces on billboards, you know, bandit right. signs, you know, people around the courthouse. I mean, you just, I, right. come on. Now. The only thing I could think of is that he picked a bridge. Now, I don't know New Orleans at all. I don't know the geography enough to tell because the shot, the show was shot on location. It was shot in New Orleans. Uh, I don't know if he was far enough away from town that maybe this is an, an out of district cop. Maybe this is an out of uh, a suburb of New Orleans that maybe he would be less noticeable or out of a ward where he works. I don't know. Man. I don't know. That was the only thing I could rationalize was that this is not he that he picked, which makes sense. You would pick a bridge not near where you or the crime were committed. Sure. To throw the brick laden bag of evidence off of. So that makes sense to me that maybe he does, and which maybe explains why the cop doesn't recognize him, but it does seem odd. It does seem odd. And also, I don't know. I feel like in that scenario, I kind of feel like they ask for ID. I kind of feel like they say like, let me see your license or whatever. Cause he was acting kind of like a weirdo. Sure. So I don't, I mean, I don't well, he had his dick out. bad police Cause he, work. Because he's so, he commits to the role where he's, he literally he takes actually a pee. pees. I gotta tell you, I mean, I pee a lot and I'm a good peer. 
I don't know that I could pee on command like that in that situation. Shy bladder would take it's over. It's possible Michael has to actually go get his PSA numbers checked. <laughs> he may, you know, he man of a certain age may have to actually get his prostate checked. And also, what if the cop was like, "Oh, I'm really sorry about that. Also, let me see your license," just because you oh, know, would have been over. Uh, belts and suspenders. Well, not over, but now he's committing himself to. I'm this judge who has to now have prostate cancer. Right, right. He's going to have to fully go into it. Like, it hasn't, you know, officer, please don't tell anyone, you know, it'll affect my election or whatever. But now it's a thing. That stuff doesn't stay quiet. Now he has to become mm. judge with fake prostate cancer. <laughs> yeah, so kind of weird. Some, 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 some holes there. The biggest hole I know that you have issue with has everything to do with the crime scene. There's a couple things here where I think we get a little more insight into the danger that lurks behind the eyes of Jimmy Baxter. Gina and Jimmy are on the news while Michael is at home clearing out the wash that his imbecile panic son overloaded the clean machine uh, with the clothing <laughs> cleaner um, with and got water everywhere. So he's stuffing clothes into the bag and he's, he's catching the news and he hears Jimmy and Gina on the news. And Jimmy basically pulls the camera into his eyeballs and says, you will be found. And subtext, you will be killed. You will be killed outside of the system, which probably cements Michael's feeling that he did the right thing even more because that that was a pretty, it was bad. It was a non-subtle threat of violence to those who ever did, because obviously the news knows who Jimmy Baxter is. And a good way to get it from Jimmy's face. Yes. You know, like, it's like a real had threat. Michael see it and it came from Jimmy's mouth right into right. that camera. Right. And it, it validates the question that we were talking about before of is Jimmy Baxter and Michael's reaction to him, is his reaction justified to the threat that Jimmy represents? Because yeah. we don't know Jimmy Baxter from a we hole don't. in the wall. We so don't. we're taking Michael, we have to take Michael's word on it that this guy really is someone you don't want to expose your son to. I think that... That news conference made me feel... Oh, yeah. I started thinking, did I do anything to Rocco? You know, <laughs> again, I'm pulling up next to the cop earlier today. Like, shit, was I in New Orleans today? Did I do something at Yaya's? So, yeah. I, yeah, Jimmy is a very intimidating guy there. And the, the dark circles around the eyes. And Gina's already in the black. I mean, this is like every Italian family dinner I ever had growing up kind of thing here at this at this thing. Not that Baxter's an Italian name. But whatever. It's, it's very like... For people who think yeah. that, you know, the Italian mob did not make it down to New Orleans, you're wrong. There's huge mafia ties back to the 1800s with the Italian Americans down in New Orleans. So check your math on that one. Yes. I, so it's going to be interesting. You know, I like the fact that we're dealing with a uh, crime family uh, aspect of it. Plus, we also have gangs, right? So we have a gang. We have a gang element in the show already, right? Because we have to get more information on why those guys were so aggro against. Adam earlier on that they that they pull out a gun that they destroy the memorial to the mother. These guys all have moms. Yeah. What are you going and destroying the guy's picture for? Care? What do you even care? Yeah. Like, and then they follow him. There's the car that's following him. Like, what is the deal? Like, what what's their beef with Adam? So there's a gang element here. Plus, we have a crime family element here, and it's in New Orleans. That's not something we ever really get to hear about, though. So I'm I'm intrigued by this setting and these players because it's not something we see often. So it's really interesting to me. I do want to talk to you about the final scene because we have the juxtaposition of the opera, the Madre Figaro song from Shawshank and that scene Yes, as Michael returns home from his spree of hastily cleaning up the evidence against Jimmy and Gina and their goon 
going to the crime scene. Yeah. What's your feeling as the episode ends? When the goon picks up that inhaler, I think, ah! <laughs> uh, so I did check around. I do have inhalers in my house and and right on that there's no like actual prescription labeling on the inhaler. It is on the box on the external part of the inhaler. So it doesn't say his name on it. So that's interesting. But I know you had a lot of questions about the level of or should I say lack of cleanup? Yeah. So I've never been in, I've been in car accidents. I've been, I was, uh, unfortunately, 2000, in 2009, it was December 3rd, 2009. I was T-boned in an intersection. I was going through an intersection. Someone blew a red light going 70 miles an hour and T-boned me on my driver's side door. Created a fucking mess, destroyed the cars, glass everywhere, a total mess. The cops were there for hours, not only taking statements and, and getting people off to ambulances and stuff, but then like there's a crime scene crowd that comes and cleans the scene. Now, this is a criminal thing. Someone died. So there's going to be police investigating the scene, collecting evidence. Right. Because you have a dead body, you have skid marks. Clearly, a hit-and-run thing happened. The news even reports it as a hit-and-run murder. Some police organization came and had to collect evidence. So that why is there all that shit? Why is there an inhaler still on the ground right where the skid marks end? Clearly, uh, any cop is going to collect an inhaler as evidence to try and identify the inhaler right next to where the skid marks of the car, the hitting car is. Yeah. But there's all this debris there's still like in the road. There's fluids and there's... You know, from yeah. the vehicles and there's, and there's, there's crime scene tape. And, yeah. Rip, crime scene tape. So we know the cops had been there. It was like ripped up. Yeah. So, right. A la gang ripped. style. Yeah, like, like you did the mom's photo and the daisies. Right. But still, that but still indicates that the cops had been there at some point. Yes. But they left the, they left all of the stuff. They left the glass in the road. People have to drive there. There are, there are municipal people who have to come clean that stuff up. It was as, it was only a smidge cleaner than when it actually happened to the point where if if Rocco's body had still been laying there I would not have been surprised at how messy a crime scene it was right and now dramatically it's it's it, it really hammers home but I think Gina collapsing as she sees the blessing I think that still hits home just as well but the idea that the inhaler would have been left on the ground all of the time that the, that the cops wouldn't have picked it up for evidence really irked me it, it, it just seemed very sloppy i i'm offended on behalf of the new orleans police department that it's being depicted that way but it also goes to the idea of during the entire time that adam is with rocco after he hits him not one car comes by did you find that weird at all well it's really seemed like that area was not only just run down and obviously impoverished but also seemed abandoned in many ways mm. like like there wasn't anybody really out on the streets except for when the people would kind of come out of nowhere right. like the gang members kind of just came out of doorways and stuff like that so in that regard i mean not really new orleans is hot people aren't just walking around hanging out like it's hot you'd sure. want to stay inside and everything um but you're right not a vehicle not anything but that does go to your sort of like it's just kind of desolate abandoned right. kind of space and I, all i can think is that is that why rocco would have chosen to go ride his motorcycle down there you have what is he doing down there you have i mean just so i think there's an element of classism here and i there think there's an is. element of race here too that if this happens in a more posh area of new orleans if this happens wherever the baxters live they are not in the same zip code i'm positive of where 
the Yaya's food store is and the gang and where he gets killed. You'd be surprised. The city is is pretty on top of one another with, with rich and poor being pretty tangled. I, but my point I was making is that I think the cops, it seems to me from this, that the cops would have maybe done a more thorough job had it happened outside of Jimmy Baxter's home. Oh, gosh, of course. Than here in the lower Ninth Ward. Well, the- who can tell trash from the inhaler from this week? Like, there's debris on the road and stuff anyway, you know? So who can tell what's important and what's not? Well, so when I'm thinking about this and I'm being irked by this, the feeling inside of me is that the show is making a statement that this all matters less because of where it happened. The cops either try less or the gangs are so... It, like like uh, like in Mogadishu, how the crime lords run the town, right? That the gangs run this town, and so the cops stay away. But then, why the crime scene? Like the police, obviously, the gang didn't put up crime tape and then tear it down, right? So I, I, there's something there's a there's a commentary being here being made here. I think about because of where it happened, it matters less, right? That they're taking it less seriously. It was just another dead body. Right until it's not until, until it's, it's Jim, not. until it's Jimmy Baxter's kid, and then it then it's it's evening news, you know, top of the evening news coverage. But before that, it would have just been a dead kid in an, an abandoned part of the area. So I want to keep an eye on that because again, coming off of the Undoing, where there was a whole classism discussion right. and racism discussion, it, I don't know if you know this, New Orleans known for its race struggles, especially in the Ninth Ward, especially in a post Katrina world. There's a lot going on there. We even get the New Orleans parish prison referenced here, which is a hotbed of racism-like talk in its history. Real Place gets named up here, and Adam's worried about that's where he's going to be spending his time because he doesn't think he's going to get... Because Michael says you're probably not going to get out on bail. You're not going to get off for bail, which is interesting that they think he's not going to get put on bail. New Orleans Parish Prison. Go look it up. Bad history following Katrina, right? You had all those inmates getting abandoned there by the, by the, the corrections officers, like left in their prisons. The Ninth Ward, 90, I looked up the statistics, 95% plus African-American population, less than 2% white population. This show is saying something by it doing here. To say nothing of the fact that the shotgun house has these markers that this family is living in. It has this like condemned house looking like markers on the walls kind of thing. The show is saying something here, I think. So I want to keep an eye on that as it goes on too. I'm very much looking forward to our discussions about, you know, would we handle it the same way? Could we handle this the same way would we do this for our children how far do you go how far do you go and and at what point can you call uncle or can you just never can are you just forever on the run here i think the steps michael took today seem justified to me i feel like he hasn't gone so far in covering things up at this point given the threat that jimmy clearly seems to represent what my son deserves for what he's done does not outweigh what Jimmy Baxter is going to do with him. So far, I feel like Michael hasn't crossed the line yet. What we saw him um, do tonight. I think throwing stuff off the, the bridge was crossing the line, Mike. But in the idea of basically covering up, he's committed to covering up the crime to distance his son. Are we saying that that's justified or not at this point? I, I mean, I think yes, because of the eyeballs into the camera. Yeah. You know, we know Jimmy Baxter's a bad guy. I, and remember, he sees that before he goes and throws that shit off the bridge. Maybe that's the final thing. He's only collecting the stuff in a bag until he sees 
yeah, the that's true. news article. And then that's when he starts panicking, starting to wash the car, wash the car down right. and stuff. Put, putting the bricks out in the yard, which is like an afterthought because he goes to get the scrub brush out of the trash. He starts picking through the trash outside the trash bag outside to get the scrub brush that Adam cleanest, have... cleanest trash I've ever seen. Very clean trash. No goopy. No goo. No coffee grinds. There's always coffee grinds, goo, wet water. Things are soppy and gross. Two bachelors. Maybe they don't eat a lot of stuff. Maybe they only eat box things. Maybe they eat out every night. Dry box things. Yeah. Maybe they. Well, I mean. Maybe Adam's girlfriend is making food at her place, and and he's a judge. So he works late hours. Maybe You're spinning he's spinning quite a tail. I'm just saying. I don't Clean know. Trash. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so he goes to get the nail brush, but he he does seem to he kicks into a different le- gear of yeah. panic after watching the news. Which I mean, it again, makes sense. I was, you yeah. know, like after seeing Jimmy in action, right? We already talked about how he seemed a little off with just presenting a good gift when he was in a good mood. Right. Imagine him when he's upset. You wouldn't I, like I to can't. see Jimmy mad. No, I don't want to see Jimmy mad, but I bet we're going to see Jimmy mad. I bet we're going to see Jimmy mad. I think we're we're going to see a lot of the Baxters in not their finest form or right. maybe their finest form. Who knows? Whichever way you look at it. <laughs> I know, lots of questions. A lot. I mean, we have 10 episodes to go. There's nine more left. I think it's going to be an interesting ride to see how this all happens and plays out. Thank you for listening. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Thank you for listening to Tales from Yaya's The Your Honor Podcast. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Tales from Yaya's at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.